What's up? You're listening to Fork the Product. I'm your host, Nick Casares. And I'm your other host, Zach Cohen. Fork the Product is a podcast that explores the intersection of blockchain, product, and user experience. We interview founders and builders to understand how they're approaching problems in the blockchain space. We're especially excited today because this episode marks the start of the second season of Fork the Product. And we have a sponsor this season, Polyant Labs. Nick, I know Polyant Labs is near and dear to you, so perhaps you could talk a little bit about Polyant. Absolutely, I'd love to. Polyant is an early-stage startup incubator. We're headquartered in Phoenix, Arizona, and we focus on blockchain-based innovations. So full disclosure, I keep saying we because I'm actually the product director at Polyant. So what does a blockchain-focused early-stage startup incubator do? Basically, we help entrepreneurs bring their blockchain ideas to life through funding, mentoring, and a variety of support services. As a team of entrepreneurs and professionals who've spent most of our careers in startups, we know startups. Polyant's goal is to help founders fast-track their early-stage blockchain ideas. So why did Polyant decide to sponsor Fork the Product? Our CEO, Brad Robertson, has been a tech entrepreneur for more than 25 years, and he recognized that a lot of the topics that we discuss on the show actually align with our vision for Polyant. And how do people find out more about Polyant? Well, if you're working on an early stage project in the blockchain space and you need help, we'd love to connect with you. So the best thing to do is visit our website. It's polyant.io. That's P-O-L-Y-I-E-N-T dot I-O for more info. And having worked side by side with you in the past, Nick, I think any team would benefit tremendously from your support. So I'm really excited about this partnership. And with that, let's go to today's show. Okay, welcome to season two of Fork the Product. I'm here. This is Zach Cohen, and I'm here with my co-host, Nick Casares. Nick, do you want to maybe give us a brief intro of season two, the approach we took, and we can talk a little bit about why we took this approach? Yeah. So I think, Zach, you and I, after season one, had some time to reflect on our process and the quality of the content that we wanted to put out. And, you know, originally when we got into this podcast process, we said, hey, let's do this every two weeks. And, you know, I think just in terms of trying to line up uh, people for the show and making sure that the content's going to be valuable for listeners. And then on top of trying to fit this around, you know, two full time jobs uh, in two different time zones and three hours apart, I, I think we had some unexpected challenges just in terms of keeping up with that pace. And so, you know, one of the takeaways for us was, okay, maybe this isn't as sustainable as we thought it was. <laughs> so what's yep. an alternative here? So, you know, kind of in the vein of, of iterating, we said, okay, what's another approach? Um, and I think this may have been inspired by another episode that you and I were listening to of a different podcast, but we started talking about this idea of what if we just release uh, a season of, of episodes kind of Netflix style. So anybody who's coming to the show for the first time can dig into something they like. And if they want to go further, there's another episode ready for them. Uh, so that was takeaway one. Let's change kind of the, the, the delivery cadence um, and let's publish things all in one fell swoop. And then I think the other thing that we talked about was we were really excited to have the guests on that we had on season one. Uh, we had some really great conversations. I think we dug into some really fascinating concepts and some aspects of the industry that are super important. For us, though, I think listening back to some of those episodes, the entire season kind of lacked some cohesion. Um, and I think that you and I, as we continue down the path of being you know, sucked into this industry further and further, we 
are developing our own perspectives on on technologies that we think are really promising. And so we thought, well, let's bring a little bit of a sharper focus to things and let's focus on some particular aspects of of blockchain and crypto and what's happening in the industry. And so you and I sat back, we did a little bit of uh, brainstorming, you know, and and kind of prioritized our wish lists. And the two that rose to the top for us were uh, NFTs or non-fungible tokens and then uh, decentralized finance or DeFi. So we started there and we kind of made our wish list of guests and started making some calls and reaching out to people. And that's how we got to season two. Yeah. And really excited, particularly uh, you sort of talked about it already, but I think the advancement of projects and even the sort of technology and underlying tools uh, around these two areas are, you know, really picking up. And obviously, with CryptoKitties and Dapper Labs uh, coming down the pike and really developing and fleshing out an identity has, uh, you know, brought up, I think, a lot of other projects in the space. And the interest overall has just escalated significantly. And actually, uh, I think there is now... I think last year, maybe it's even a couple of years running now. I think there's a an NFT conference here in New York City, which we should check out this year or whenever the next one is. But you know, th- I think these are all really positive signs, and you know, the whole gaming use case is very exciting. So I think that was something that we were both very interested in delving into more deeply. And obviously, DeFi has just blown up. It took a little bit of time. You know, after Maker introduced Maker Die, and you know, I think there's a lot of a lot more activity now that that is up and running and has been sort of sustainable uh, since it launched. So it's very exciting to see all of the sort of crazy emergent ideas that are coming up. Uh, so it'll definitely be an, an exciting space to watch moving forward. And we thought it was going to be important for us to to go deep on that one. Definitely. And, you know, I think we saw some of those interesting use cases and some really kind of innovative ideas coming out in some of the conversations that we had with people. Since we are zeroing in a bit further this season, we thought it would be a great idea for listeners uh, who may or may not be familiar with with these concepts. If we just kind of walk through the high level uh, for a minute or two and explain, uh, at least to the best of our abilities, what these technologies uh, are and how they represent uh, interesting directions for the industry. So NFTs or non-fungible tokens, I think before we can really explain them, we have to take a step back and consider what uh, fungibility means or when something is fungible. Um, so I think for me, the simplest way to think about fungibility is uh, something things in our world that can be replaced by another similar thing. So it's a commodity item. But if you think about just a, a standard dollar, right, a US dollar, or any fiat currency, really, a $20 bill today can be spent, whether it was produced you know, 20 years ago, or whether uh, it was freshly minted this afternoon. That $20 bill represents $20 of US value, and it's universally recognized as a placeholder for that. Um, so they're interchangeable, essentially, and they can be uh, easily replaced or, or swapped for one another. So when we talk about something that is non-fungible, we're really talking about something that cannot be replaced by another thing of like kind. And so what that points to is an idea of uniqueness in a digital realm. Um, and to make that even a little bit more uh, easy to grasp, I think about NFTs really as representing the first the first time that I think we can really 
uh, have digital ownership of something. So for the first time, really, I think in the history of the internet, things that we always thought were just, uh, you know, copies, digital copies of themselves can actually be assigned ownership or that ownership can be assigned to an individual via a cryptographic private key, which claims ownership on a non-fungible token or claim to that thing. Uh, so, you know, that opens the door for some really interesting directions in terms of the way that we think about uh, where we take, you know, just digital uh, digital items in the future. Um, so, you know, Zach, as we think back about the conversations, what were some of the things that poked out to you about how we can apply NFTs in the future? Yeah, so, and I'll just quickly uh, list the projects that we interviewed for the NFT portion, just to set some context. Uh, so uh, we were really, I, I think the, the sort of cast of projects that we got on were fantastic this season and really excited uh, to... Uh, for listeners to to delve into all of the episodes. So on NFTs, we spoke to OpenSea, uh, we spoke to Super Rare, Cargo, CryptoKitties, and Dapper Labs. And we'll go into uh, a little bit of each of them. But I think, you know, obviously CryptoKitties and Dapper Labs uh, started by, you know, the same company. They were the leaders in the space um, in, you know, releasing CryptoKitties, which, you know, just, although it spiked enormously when it was first introduced uh, and it has since dropped off in terms of usage, it is still a very active community. And, uh, you know, I think the, the way in which CryptoKitties and now Dapper Labs have been approaching taking things to market is... Uh, I think an example for any project in the space, whether you're in NFTs or not. And I, I also am really impressed with the sort of constellation of projects that they have that are all sort of loosely tied together based on NFTs. And uh, obviously they recently announced Flow, which is uh, blockchain specific to enabling sort of gaming and uh, these types of use cases. You know, a perfect example of how great a job they've done at taking things to market and cultivating community around, you know, the projects that they're releasing is the fact that one of the two people that we interviewed, uh, Alan Carr is a, he basically stumbled upon crypto kitties and independently and was not working with them, became sort of obsessed and built tools around crypto kitties and, you know, in support of the crypto kitties community. And, that's how he kind of got connected to the CryptoKitties team. They brought him in and, you know, he ultimately joined the team full time. So I think that, you know, says it all in terms of how great a job they're doing there. Yeah, in terms of OpenSea, I think uh, what's it, clearly OpenSea is it has to be the leader, if not in, you know, the top uh, marketplaces, if not the top marketplace for NFTs. And, you know, I think understanding how they've approached uh, building out tools and focusing on, you know, developers is, you know, I don't know if it's necessarily unique, but I think they are doing certain things in a unique way. And uh, it's clear based on how much traction they've been getting. And I mean, if you, anyone goes on to OpenSea, you can see all sorts of different, uh, really diverse uh, offerings. And, you know, example of that is, 
you can now uh, buy an ENS or Ethereum name service domain through OpenSea. Uh, but you can also buy crypto kitties or you know crypto zombies or whatever, and I think that is uh, a testament to the the great work they've done cultivating that uh, and allowing people to you know get in on secondary or earn revenue from secondary sales. Yeah, you know that's something we heard from John uh, Crane at Super Rare too. So you know Super Rare and OpenSea are a little bit similar in that they're they're allowing people to sort of uh, buy, sell, and trade. Uh, these types of non-fungible assets. But what I thought was really interesting about Super Rare uh, and, and John's team's approach uh, to NFTs is that they're really going after the art collection uh, user. So, you know, somebody who is interested in digital native art and somebody who's interested in really curating their own collection of art. And it was interesting to hear him talk about just the process of you know working with with digital first artists and people yeah. that really seem to get this technology. You know, I, there's a creator out there that goes by the name of I, on Twitter. He's uh, at Coldy, uh, and he's he's got some really exciting art out there. Um, and these are people that are just embracing this format and this new way to distribute their art forms. So I'm really excited to see where not only the development of the technology goes, but also just art in general. You know, John talked about this idea of a future state where art collection and the idea of art is back in the realm of society. Because for, for a lot of people, art, it's somewhat tangential to their life. It's something that they, they might appreciate once in a while. You know, they, they have a favorite painting or two, or they might visit a museum, but it's not central to their life. And, it, you know, that's historically art had a very central place in society. And so if there's a future with NFTs and the ability to own things again in a digital space, if that brings back an appreciation for art and people are excited to have creativity back in their life on a regular basis, you know, that's as, that's as exciting to me as streaming music, right? It's, it's bringing some of the, the beauty of humanity back into our, into our, you know, sometimes digitally dull lives. So that's really, really exciting. And then I think, you know, uh, there's a whole backside of, of these technologies, which is how do you create these things, right? So similar to uh, ERC-20 tokens, you know, you have to actually create these things and you have to deploy a contract uh, to announce your token to the world and, and basically make it available. And so there are some protocols out there um, that actually enable the creation of non-fungible tokens. And somebody needs to create those tools. And so we talked to Cargo. Uh, we talked to, to Sean at Cargo, actually. And it was really exciting to hear his perspective on how developing tools can actually be kind of a superpower for taking these technologies to the next level. So one of the, one of the friction uh, points right now with NFTs is they, they can be expensive to create because every when you create an NFT, uh, at least with one of the earlier specs, it's kind of a one-to-one -one activity. And you have to pay gas on that transaction. With some of the newer technologies or some of the newer specs like ERC-1155, it actually allows you to deploy NFTs in a much more uh, economically feasible way. So if you're an artist that's creating a marketplace and you want to publish your art uh, as NFTs kind of at scale, you know, maybe in batches of 50 or 100 or 1,000, who knows, uh, there's a much more... Uh, affordable way to do that using some of the newer technologies. And that's really where, where Sean's approaching the industry. So 
you know, I think in the future, we're going to start seeing this confluence of the tools to get it done, like to actually publish these things uh, as NFTs. And then we're going to see more of those quote unquote things start to emerge, you know, whether those are collectibles and games or digital art or new ways to think about uh, access or, or, you know, tickets even are an interesting use case. So I'm really excited about where it goes. I definitely have some questions, right, about what what the future could look like. And I'm curious, what are your thoughts on the future of NFTs? Just quickly, I wanted to add to what you were saying in that something that's so interesting to me is seeing how, you know, the projects that are building in this space, they are they are the ones contributing ideas around new standards or, you know, building new primitives that can be leveraged. So it's it's very much a sort of open source community to help everybody build these things out. And it's just such an interesting dynamic that seems very different than the sort of traditional uh, proprietary software world. And I think is fantastic. Yeah, I guess in terms of open questions on NFTs, I, I wonder if because, you know, these primitives and tools and standards are so flexible that it, it's, it's almost uh, like you have an unlimited plane for being able to pursue ideas. And, you know, that means you can get all sorts of scattered things. So I, I wonder if there's uh, like, how will the NFT community, if there is even a community around it, but how, how will we be able to keep all of these ideas sort of focused and chugging along in a direction that leads to real commercial success? And even, you know, I think, uh, Nick, we've talked about this using uh, a given NFT in multiple gaming scenarios. Uh, I know that is the vision for Cheese Wizards, which we talked a little bit about. But how are game designers going to work within that? Like, presumably, when you design characters or whatever the in game items are, you're sort of designing them with one game in mind. So I, I'm curious to see how it plays out. Uh, in terms of companies or projects designing multiple games that are all bridged from one to the next so that you can have items that flow naturally into and out of them? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. And and I think you tap on something there, which is just the incentive structure and you know, even back to business model design. So when when these game developers are thinking about how do you capture, you know, attention in your ecosystem for your game or games, that's going to be, you know, enough to make your 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 business viable, right? You have to have a certain level of engagement and retention from your player base. And if you're giving them, if you're enabling your game with NFTs that allow them to basically pick up their stuff and walk, you know, on one hand, that may be great for retention because players can ha- they have more choice and they can leave and they can come back freely. On the other hand, it becomes the paradox of choice for players and they maybe the retention actually starts to look really terrible because people are just constantly kind of game jumping. Yeah. Um, and there's no incentive to stick around and really build community with other players. So yeah, that's that's definitely open an open question. I think one of the things that comes to mind for me is when we think about just the space in general, there are a lot of complexities around getting involved with with crypto as a user, right? So you have to first you have to understand at some level what what cryptocurrency is and i'm talking about present state not future state i think future state we've all said it'll be great when we're not talking about these things yeah. but but today you have to kind of understand what these concepts are and this this the fundamentals of the technology and nfts are yet another layer 
yep. that we're, we're putting on top and we're saying, hey, did you know you can digitally own something now? And I think most people, you know, yeah. would just <laughs> like, give you a blank stare. Like, what, what yeah, does that even mean? Right? Yeah, exactly. So what the hell, what the hell do I do with it? Like, right. how does that change how I interact with this thing? Absolutely. And I think another open question for me is really around. So if we think about what it means to own something, um, there's at least in the United States, uh, but also many other countries around the world, there's a a fundamental legal right attached to property ownership. Mm, yeah. And it's something that you can actually take to a court of law and and you can, you know, you can fight a case based on your property ownership rights. And so when we talk about NFTs, we're saying that somebody digitally owned something. But as the use cases start to scale to more than CryptoKitties, which, you know, there are some expensive CryptoKitties out there, but for most people, it's a hobby activity. But if we start looking at things like an NFT on a property title, right, and there's some sort of dispute, you know, how how does that get resolved? Uh, sure, we can we can point to the NFT, we can point to the chain, and in theory, code is law, and it's easy to sort of suss that out. But I think in reality, in, in practical application, we're going to see a lot of gray area where we're going to need some sort of structure for interpreting digital ownership in a, in a legal framework. Yeah, I, it is all very interesting. And, you know, that also that gets me to the question of how are people going to handle taxes on, you know, secondary trades or, you know, any trading of NFTs. And, you know, I, we didn't actually get into that much in the interviews, but I'm sure it's something that they worry about a lot. I think we did a little bit maybe in, in some of the other interviews, but if you're empowering people to earn money, I, for me, I think you have to start thinking about how do I ensure that people, or I guess it's it becomes a, a blocker for uh, participating and using the game to its you know full capacity if you're not empowering people uh, with how to deal with you know the effects of that. So. Yeah, and we've seen that in the past with you know uh, streaming music, right? People, the people got a hold of Napster, and everybody thought, "Wow, this is amazing! I can go to sleep and I can wake up with albums of music." And there were downstream implications of that, and continue to be downstream implications of that. Yeah, where it's still, on one hand, it's this amazing enabling technology that's opened up, you know, the the joy of music to billions of people. On the other hand, it's still a problem, both legally and from an artist's perspective and anybody involved in that value chain. So yeah, really interesting things to keep an eye on. Yeah. Well, very cool. So I think now we can describe a little bit about the second topic, which we're also very excited about, and uh, that is decentralized finance or yeah. DeFi. So, you know, I think how I think about DeFi is you know, you're you're really leveraging, and this particularly applies to Ethereum, but you know any of these uh, smart contracting platforms that are coming up. Uh, and you know, when you have something like a smart contract that can hold assets in escrow, and you can provide instructions and conditions on how they can release them to whom in a decentralized way. Uh, clearly, you're enabling just an unlimited number of use cases uh, within financial services. And it's been really interesting to watch this play out. Um, I think we've, that's probably following CryptoKitties, the biggest sort of explosion of use case 
and obviously apart from the the classic ICO, which <laughs> feels like a a real thing of the past. But um, you know, I think there are really just unlimited possibilities, and, and it's exciting to have interviewed a couple of the projects that are really at the center of that, and that includes uh, Pool Together. Uh, which is a no-loss lottery compound, which is really becoming, it's like this decentralized money market and has sort of become the new center of all of these use cases, uh, obviously apart from uh, Maker and Dai. Uh, and then Gossamer, which is, uh, maybe I'll, I'll hold off on going into Gossamer and Snowball uh, since they're, they have some similarities, but all really interesting and, and somewhat different uh, angles into the DeFi space. So what sort of stuck out to you as as we went through those interviews? Yeah. So we talked to, uh, I think, you know, Compound obviously is one of the, the leaders in the DeFi space in terms of giving the community tools to enable uh, open finance use cases. Um, but I guess backing up one, one step, one of the things that's so exciting to me about this aspect of blockchain and crypto is just the empowerment that this technology uh, has the potential to bring to the world. I'm still on the fence about, you know, projects like Libra, um, you know, that yeah. are making big claims about being able to be an enabling technology for billions of people in the world. Um, I think they've got a huge, a huge challenge ahead of them. And I'm not sure if that project's ever going to actually make the impact that they're hoping it will. Yeah. Um, but I do see a lot of potential in these uh, smaller uh, smaller slices of, of value and these these more targeted use cases, where you know you can take a technology like Compound and you can go into a target market um, where you really understand a very narrow slice of people that need access to financial tools, and you can apply something like Compound in a way that really suits their needs. You know, I think Libra is trying to boil the ocean. That's probably one of their biggest challenges. But as more DeFi tools come out that enable developers and companies to serve the needs of target audiences that they really understand. I think it really does start to unlock that vision of empowering a slice of people in the world who just don't have access to some of these financial tools. Yeah, I, I think that is absolutely true. And it's almost, uh, and this gets at what you were saying, but it's so exciting to see in particular open source decentralized tools like this that anybody can come and build and meet those narrow use cases. And when you think about incumbents, obviously traditional banking is what you think of. But even if you consider if Libra ever launches, uh, that will instantly become just extraordinarily big and touch just about everybody uh, or you know much much bigger reach than probably any individual bank. And that is, I mean, that's a scary concept in some ways. But if you think about what DeFi offers uh, in the true DeFi way, it, it could be individual use cases and projects focusing on a very narrow slice can be like death by a million paper cuts against the a big incumbent like a traditional bank or a, a Libra. So it's, it's exciting to see, uh, you know, how this all plays out. Yeah, and that's something that really resonated with me about Compound's approach. Um, yeah, you know, in speaking with with Jason on their team, um, who leads up design, he he really emphasized the fact that they they are building a protocol, and you know, the application that they have running right now, when you go to Compound, 
it's really just a demonstration of the protocol's capabilities so that developers understand what's possible. And they're in no way trying to make that the primary product. In fact, they would rather uh, kind of disappear into the background and see the protocol power thousands of use cases for DeFi. As we're seeing, I mean, there are so many projects building on top of Compound. And actually, uh, Pool Together is one of those. And uh, Leighton who you know started this through a hackathon project at I think ETH Denver, which you were at, was a clear example of that. And you know, in engaging with him and understanding uh, what that process was like, uh, is I think very inspiring because it it really didn't take him much to get up and running with this no loss lottery concept, and you know the the growth in a very short period of time demonstrates that if you really have a good and compelling idea with you know a lot less execution than would be required I think in the traditional finance world uh, you can get something up and running and it's it really is like the democratization of finance so that I thought that was very very interesting and I will also add that I think you know in seeing Leighton and the team that he's put together iterate very quickly, uh, and obviously get adoption. I, I think it, some interesting call-outs are that he's very keen on focusing on just international expansion uh, rather than flooding the project with too many features. But some of the features that he is planning to add, uh, which I, I found out later on, but you know, allowing individuals to pool together their tickets and maximize their chance of uh, winning as a group. So really, really interesting stuff. Yeah. And, you know, so when we talk about projects like Pool Together, which is really leveraging some of the capabilities of Compound, um, and we talk about Compound really empowering developers, you know, those are the, I, I think, from my perspective, anyway, that's kind of the early adopter audience, right? These are the people that are innovating and building with some new technology and taking risks, to be honest, to, to really see what's possible. I think on the other side of the spectrum, there is there is a target audience which is very new to crypto uh, and you know might see the potential and they're looking at uh, alternative options for participating in crypto finance but they're not they're not developers they're not a very uh, technical use case or they don't they don't have that experience with the technology and we saw that with the approach that gossamer's taking um, which you know they're they're focused on a very actually non crypto target audience. So their their whole goal is to get this in front of as many people as possible and make it super super simple to be able to go in to invest and get a return in a, in a very easy way. And then I think even taking one step back from that in speaking with Snowball, which is not actually decentralized yet, although they they've talked about a direction that goes towards decentralization, um, is. Uh, you know, really just understanding that there are many people in the world who would like to see a better return on their money, right? We we would all love to invest something for our futures. So if there are ways to get people involved and in participating in the opportunities in the crypto space that doesn't require them to be experts, that doesn't require them to, you know, have been in the space for three or four years to understand these things, I think that's I think that's great. And, and I think it's a, a really healthy thing for the ecosystem to start pulling in people that are sort of crypto adjacent, you know, watching from the sidelines with with the idea that they want to get in, in and just haven't really taken the step. So it's it's projects like Snowball and Gossamer that are going to open that aperture up. Yeah, I and I think it's a very good sign that 
you know, we're starting to see projects that have the appetite to go after those, you know, non-crypto native folks. Um, I feel like a year ago, you really didn't have much of that. And it felt a kind of cypherpunk vibe uh, in pretty much all of the projects. So I think it's it's a really important step if we want crypto to become more mainstream that we have projects like this. And again, you know, with Gossamer, they built on top of Compound. So that's uh, a clear, you can sort of see the, like the full stack of, you know, what in DeFi is making this possible. So right, it's, right. it's, I think really a, an exciting trajectory. So what are your, what are your questions, your open questions about DeFi, you know, similar to NFTs where there are some definite unanswered questions and some scenarios <laughs> that need to be addressed. I think there's, you know, there's that same uh, situation with DeFi. So what's in your mind there? <laughs> yeah. Uh, clearly DeFi raises all sorts of serious questions. Uh, like, are we just building a new house of cards that yeah. at, at any moment could crumble? And because, you know, the, the sort of advantage and disadvantage of having a completely open and decentralized way to access finance like that means anybody can access it which means if and when this goes mainstream like the reach could be so much broader than any one bank in the traditional finance world so are we setting ourselves up for real disaster is something i think about a lot uh on the other hand you know it it does unlock uh, enormous potential, particularly for people that have been historically uh, cut out of the traditional finance world. So I, I think it's it's a very worthy endeavor, but we need to be careful. How about you? Yeah, I think to build on on your point there, the, the House of Cards thing. So uh, yes, very much. I have the question of you know, are we rebuilding banking? Um, yeah. And you know, are, are we actually doing it in a way that's thoughtful enough to avoid some of the problems that we have with our current banking systems? But I think on the other side of the house of cards question is the technical reliance from project to project. So I think it's awesome that Compound's building a tool that can be built on and enable these use cases that you know maybe their team would never think of. On the other hand, and this this is we see this in software today, right? We've products that are built on dozens of APIs, and every every integration represents a potential vulnerability in your product because you're basically outsourcing the responsibility for that piece of your your technology stack. And so when we think about things that have serious implications in people's financial lives, I think you have to put some real thought into which pieces you want to outsource and also, you know, understanding what happens uh, when things go wrong, and what you can, what you can, and what you should be able to offer to your user base in terms of uh, being able to re- recover from an event. Yeah, absolutely. It's it. There's a lot, uh, a lot in there, but it. You know, I think it's it's important for us to pursue that direction, if for no other reason than to provide competitive uh, a competitive push to traditional banking. Okay. So why don't we go ahead and wrap up and uh, maybe do you want to briefly touch on what we're thinking for beyond this season? Yeah. So I, I think, you know, the jury is out on whether this this sort of Netflix style episode approach is going to work uh, or season approach is going to work. Um, but 
I've enjoyed focusing in on topics. Uh, I would love feedback from our listeners about topics you think we should explore and go a bit deeper on. Um, if you have ideas for for those topics, please get in touch. Uh, you can visit us at forktheproduct.com. As always, please uh, take a minute to rate, review, and share the show. It helps us grow the podcast and get this message out because we think we're onto something uh, good. Yeah, and if you're on a project, a uh, crypto project that uh, might be interesting to have on the show, please do reach out. We're you know always looking for interesting folks to have on the show, and uh, we're excited to see how this season goes and. Uh, allow the feedback that you share with us and inquiries that we get to shape uh, the future direction of the show. Sounds great. Let's get to season two. All right. Enjoy. Enjoy.